Father, we do thank you for how you raise up people to do good works in your name. And so we do pray, um, as was just mentioned to us by Pastor Tim, that these boxes that go around that do contain a gospel message, that they would be used by you. And in eternity alone will tell the ultimate eternal benefits uh, that come from it and children and others who come to a saving knowledge of you. But we certainly can see a good testimony to your name uh, among the world, and for that we thank you. And Father, we ask now as we open the word that you would speak to us, our Lord Jesus, that by your spirit you would give us understanding that we would, as we mentioned earlier, hear your voice, that we would be shaped in our thinking and in our affections toward righteousness. And it is to that end, and to your everlasting glory, glory, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, open up your Bibles, if you will, back to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. We haven't uh, been there in a while. And actually, this morning, we're not going to be there that much. Uh, but we are going to um, begin our thoughts with the book of Ecclesiastes. We've taken a little bit of a break now for several weeks. I don't know how long, but at least three or four weeks and so uh, this is, in one sense, to set a, a framework for what we're going to be looking at, and in another sense, uh, an opportunity just to easily transition back into Solomon's uh, book of Ecclesiastes that he wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, he's going to introduce us to the topic of wealth, the idea of wealth. And certainly, if anybody was uh, qualified to speak on the topic of wealth, it was Solomon, at least by the credentials that he had wealth. Now, what he did with wealth and how he used it is another question, but even from that, we have much to learn. And so he is going to bring us this morning to the topic of wealth. Now, the idea of wealth can apply to a variety of things. We can use it metaphorically. We can speak of a wealth of knowledge that someone might have. We can speak of somebody as wealthy in terms of relationships, if they have many friends and many close acquaintances and so forth. They are a wealthy person. We can even speak of wealth in terms of being Christians, that we are wealthy with spiritual blessings. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we are wealthy in that sense. However, wealth is most commonly understood or thought about in terms of possessions, in terms of actual possessions. And so here would be a common definition. This is from our trusted resource Webster's Dictionary. Uh, you can find it repeated around, but this is essentially uh, captures it, the idea of wealth. An abundance of possessions or an abundance of anything. An abundance of possession or an abundance of anything. That's the idea of wealth that it's in its broadest sense. Now, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, but primarily in the Old Testament, there are a variety of terms and nuances that are translated as wealth in Scripture. However, they all relate back to this broad idea of an abundance of possessions, having enough, more than enough, even to be satisfied, to be provided for, to have your needs met, and then some. And so the reality is, however, that wealth, as we well know, just as Christians, and we certainly know from the testimony of Scripture, and we especially know from the testimony of Solomon and what we've seen already in his life, that while wealth can speak of having an abundance, enough to be satisfied, enough to be happy, enough to be well cared for, enough to be content, wealth itself can produce none of those things. 
It can produce none of those things. It can never truly satisfy. And this truth is at the heart of Solomon's instructions in this next section. Now, this next section we're going to look at is Ecclesiastes 5, beginning in verse 10, and it runs all the way through to the end of chapter 6. In order to introduce this topic this morning, I'm only going to read to you a couple verses just to set our mind on, on these things. And that is in verse 10 and verse 18. He begins by saying in verse 10, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's the basic principle. Nor he who loves abundance with its income, this too is vanity. Conversely, verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat and drink and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. So the contrast here then is one who loves abundance, one who loves money, one who loves wealth, will never be satisfied by those things, and yet all of those things can be a means of satisfaction when they're understood in their proper place before God, when they're understood in their proper place as expressions of the goodness of God and of the provision of God. And so in that sense, they can be good and, and in fact, should be means of thanksgiving and praise to God. So with that said, this morning, my goal is this. It is to set a framework for the idea of wealth and how we as Christians are to think about wealth. So here's the plan, is this morning to address a theology of wealth, which is to give a broad picture of what Scripture teaches about the idea of wealth. And then next week, we'll look at the actual passage, Ecclesiastes 5, verse 10, and we're going to try to get all the way through to the end of chapter 6. And then we're going to have what has long been requested of me, but we've never actually done a message on giving. And we're going to relate that to a Christian specifically, a Christian's understanding of wealth in light of the gospel and particularly how Christians are to think about giving. What is giving in the new covenant, under the new covenant? And so that's the plan. But this morning, what I want to do again is set a general framework for the discussion by giving a theology of wealth, we could call it. And that actually is the title. I think it said a theology of worship in the bulletin, but it's meant to be a theology of wealth. And some of the passages, you might have others that come to your mind. We're not, we certainly can't touch on everything that Scripture says about it, but some of the passages we will touch on lightly and we'll look at in more detail in the weeks ahead. Now, wealth in Scripture is seen both positively and negatively, positively and negatively. It's seen from the vantage point of creation and God's goodness in creation, God's design in creation for humans to flourish, for humans to have an abundance, for humans to know happiness out of all of the things that God has made. And it's seen negatively in light of the fall and what sin has brought in terms of corrupting the good things that God made. So with that in mind, we're going to look at wealth under broad, broadly under five different headings, five different headings. And of course, these will be listed out for you as we go along. The first is this, wealth and creation, and then wealth and the covenant, and then wealth and the consummation of all things, and then wealth and corruption, the corruption of the human heart, and finally, wealth and Christ, wealth and Christ. Let's begin with briefly looking at wealth and creation. Wealth and creation. Creation was designed, as I mentioned, and we know from the very opening chapters of Scripture, to reflect the glory of God, 
but in reflecting the glory of God also to be a physical world full of delights, full of beauty, full of goodness, full of things for man's pleasure and for man's satisfaction. And in God, man's enjoyment of all of the good things that God created, there was to be then a reflection of the glory of God and there was this sort of cyclical relationship of man enjoying God's gift, God, man enjoying what God has created, man offering up to God praise, God pouring out more blessing on man and there it is it's a beautiful connection a beautiful kind of communion and fellowship to the glory of God and to our eternal satisfaction that is the design and so in verse 9 of chapter 2 it says this out of the ground the Lord God caused every to grow every tree listen that is pleasing to the sight and good for food that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. We are not mere machines. We are not robots. We don't exist in a world where we get by merely from necessity. We don't live in a world where things merely fit our needs. We have a pleasure in them. If you love to cook, you know that. God created spices and foods and textures and colors. It's his art form to create a good meal. Mothers do it all the time. It is an art form to put the right things on a plate that are not merely to say you'll have energy for the next day. Anything could do that. But it is to create a sense of delight and a sense of pleasure. When we look at landscapes, when we see the stars in the sky, when we see colors and smell the fragrant smells of spring and feel the coolness of a breeze and so on and so forth, it is a world that's filled with sensory delights. Sensory delights. And God made it so. He caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight, that is good for food, and then the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And these pleasures that were created there for man's joy and for man's flourishing are overwhelming in the extravagance of the descriptions. He speaks of a river that flowed in verse 10 to water the garden. He provided for everything for its abundance. And from there it divided and became four rivers that he lists. And then he goes on and he took man and he put him into the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And by cultivating and to keep it, by living in harmony with all that God has made, there was to be again a delight and a flourishing and a joy and a blessing to man. And this creation blessing is seen throughout scripture. Let me just point to one passage in 1 Timothy 4. And I'm going to be jumping around a lot, so... Some of the passages I'm just going to read, don't try to follow. But in 1 Timothy 4, he takes this idea of the goodness of God in creation and uses it and sets it against the false teaching of those who would come in and teach man to abstain, to see these things that should be celebrated as good as bad. And so he says in 1 Timothy 4, he talks about men who forbid marriage and abstaining from foods, which... which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. Here it is. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. He says in the last part of verse 17 of chapter 6 that God has richly supplied us with all things to enjoy. So Christians are not to shun or despise the idea of wealth, the idea of abundance, the idea of enjoying those things that God has made in his creation to be a blessing to us, to be a satisfaction to us, to be our ha for our happiness. Wealth is also a part of God's covenant. 
the idea of possessions, the idea of abundance, the covenant that God made with Israel. We're familiar with the prosperity that marked the lives of the early patriarchs, the early men of God with whom he made the covenant, beginning with Abraham and his offspring. Just listen to some of the ways that they are described. And again, I'm just going to read these. Abraham, it says in Genesis 13, 2 and 6, it says this. Now, Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and in gold, and the land could not sustain them. Later than them, there is Abraham and Lot. While dwelling together, for their possessions were so great, they were not able to remain together. Such was the blessing of God. Of Isaac. In Genesis 26, 12 through 14, it says this. Now Isaac sowed in the land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. And the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy. He was rich, richer, and the richest. For he had possessions of flocks and herds and a great household so that the Philistines envied him. They saw such a blessing of God, which was specifically God's blessing on his life and the abundance of the things that God gave him. Of Jacob in Genesis 30, 43, it says this. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. There was an abundance. Of course, Joseph, who went in poverty sold as a slave into Egypt, ended up rising to a place of great prominence as a part of God's blessing on his people. And they stayed in the best of the land and they multiplied and they flourished. And God even promised that when they left Egypt in Genesis 15, looking forward to what he was going to do, he said this, he said it to Abraham, Looking forward to when uh, they'd be a nation in Egypt and delivered. He says this, But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. They will plunder the Egyptians, as it said in another place. When they entered the land of Canaan, God brought them to a place as a part of his covenant blessing, a place of flourishing, a place of abundance, a place full of delights and opportunities. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses speaking to the generation that was going to enter into the land of Canaan, he describes it in this way. It's a, it's a common way throughout Scripture, as you're familiar with, many of you, of how this land and the goodness and the abundance of this land was described. And he says this in verse 7, actually, of Deuteronomy 8. For the Lord your God is bringing you to a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing forth in valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you will eat food without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you will eat there, And you will be satisfied, he says, verse 10, and when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. In other words, I'm bringing you as a part of my covenant blessing. As a matter of fact, as a central part of of the covenant blessing is a land, a piece of property, a piece of real estate designed just for you. And it's not a place of want. It's a place of overflowing abundance. I'm bringing you to a place where you will never need to go hungry, where you will never lack anything for your delight and for your blessing and for your flourishing on earth. 
And this kind of blessing then was a desire of the righteous, of a righteous Israelite who walked righteously and longed for this kind of blessing from God. So Psalm 144 says this, and again, just listen. Let your sons and their youth be as grown-up plants and our daughters as corner pillars fashioned as for a palace. Let our garners be full, furnishing every kind of produce, and our flocks bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Let our cattle bear without mishap and without loss. Let there be no outcry in our streets. How blessed are the people who are so situated. How blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. One more, Psalm 147 says this, again in verse 12. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise your God, O Zion, for he has strengthened the bars of your gates. He has blessed your sons within you. He makes peace in your borders. He satisfies you with the finest of the wheat. He sends forth his command to the earth, and his word runs very swiftly. He gives snow like wool, and he scatters the frost like ashes. He casts forth his ice as fragments. Who can stand before his cold? And he goes on. He, in other words, blesses his people with an abundance. And and that blessing then of abundance to his people was to mark them off as the people of the God who alone is the maker of heaven and earth, who alone has the power to give these things, who alone can bless with these things. Even the tabernacle and the temple given to Israel as an expression of their worship were part of in their design, essential to their design, were meant to be signs of God restoring the conditions of Eden. They were signs of God's beginning to reestablish the conditions of Eden and blessing. The temple, later the temple, first the tabernacle and the temple, and the nation were to reflect and anticipate the inbreaking of the new creation, God dwelling among his people, his people living in fellowship with him, and in this fellowship displaying prosperity and flourishing in the world that God has made. It was to be God's blessing on a righteous people, and by that blessing to a righteous people, that nation then would be a witness to all of the earth, a light, as it were, unto the nations, a place for other them to look at, the other nations to look at, and see who is their God. Deuteronomy said, now it shall be, 28 verse 1, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, be careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today. That's the righteousness of the nation. And here's the blessing. The Lord your God will set you on high above all of the nations. And we can think of Solomon himself, the author of Ecclesiastes. We can think of Solomon himself, who was so extravagant in the wealth and the blessing that God gave him, that the nations flocked to him because of his wisdom because of the glory that God had given to him and through him to the kingdom of Israel, to the nation of Israel. Now, the reality is that prosperity did not always attend the righteous. Often the righteous experienced suffering, and the nation sometimes, and here's something for us to take note of, particularly as American citizens. We can connect with many of these uh, parallels Sometimes the nation of Israel throughout her history knew times of great prosperity and great blessing and overflowing of possessions while their heart was unrighteous and disobedient to God. While they were being disobedient to God, they yet knew an abundance of blessing or blessing in the sense, or let me just say prosperity. They knew that. 
Now, ultimately, their prosperity then in those conditions would be removed, and the promise of blessing and abundance with righteousness was the promise of the future. And so the nation never realized the full blessing of the covenant blessings that God had. They had little snippets here and then. They had foretaste of it, but they never fully possessed it. And so it was always a promise that remained to them and, let me say, remains to them. And so wealth and the consummation, in other words, the fullness, the bringing together of all of God's plans. This is number three. And this coming together of what God would do in blessing the nation, even in their possessions and materially and peace and so forth, finds expression in the millennial kingdom. Now, the millennial kingdom comes from the New Testament and our understanding of it being a thousand years this kingdom, future kingdom blessing to the nation of Israel from the book of Revelation in chapter 20. In the Old Testament, they only saw this as a future kingdom. They would not have had a thousand years attached to it. We understand it and call it the millennial kingdom, looking back to the revelation, particularly through the prophets, when he spoke of this kingdom, when he marked out this kingdom as a distinct promise to the nation of Israel, a promise that we will participate in, but it was a promise made to Israel, who is the vine. We are branches grafted into that vine, Romans chapter 11. But let me just again read to you several passages. Again, there's, there's much on this, but I'll read to you some of the ways this kingdom is described. Joel 2, 23 through 24. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for your abundant rain, for you abundant rain. The early and the latter rain is before the threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Abundance. Amos 9.13 Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, and when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all of the hills will be dissolved. In other words, there will be a level ground for you and there will be an overflowing abundance of every good thing. Zechariah 3.10, in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Again, exceeding blessing, exceeding blessing. One more, Isaiah 65, verse 20. Speaking here of this kingdom. Now, he's speaking here in this kingdom in verse 17 of a new heavens and a new earth. And you have to understand, and this is just a little footnote here, that when God gives prophecy in the Old Testament, and this is part of why what needed to be untangled with the actual appearing of Christ is dissecting some of what referred to his future reign and his first appearing. In other words, his first appearing, Isaiah 53, for example, is suffering his future reign as the son of David who would rule over a regenerate nation. So he says in verse 17, he speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, prophecy is blended together. It's spoken of as one event. And as the history unfolds and as God's fulfilling those promises unfolds, we realize the details of it, which sometimes we realize are two separate points in time. And so he does here. And here in this particular passage in verse 20, speaking of the millennial kingdom, and you'll see aspects of this that are distinct from the eternal state. Verse 20, no longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. 
They will build houses and inhabit them, and they will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of my people, and my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or build, bear children for calamity, for they are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. So this was the promise of the coming kingdom, a future blessing, a flourishing, and abundance of possessions. Now under the new covenant and in light of the accomplishments of Christ, the details of the future grew in clarity and detail and in greatness. And there was a greater emphasis on the future as the place of the final blessing and a greater emphasis on the present as a time of suffering. For all who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer. Now is the time for suffering. And even though there has been much blessing to God's people, that is an exception to the hatred of the world against God's people. That is a break. That is, again, it is not the, the mainstay that we should expect. We should expect to be hated by the world. He said to 1 Peter, don't be surprised that the world hates you. And this emphasis, however, on the future doesn't mitigate the promise to Israel. I just need to make that note of an earthly kingdom. It merely expands it and adds to it. And now we have a fuller picture, an even fuller picture of what the ultimate end of all of God's people to, will expect at the end of the book, at the end of Scripture. Verse 21, verse 7 of chapter 21 of Revelation, he who overcomes will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son and what will he inherit? All of the new heavens and the new earth. And it's described in these lavish, lavish descriptions of wealth. Just listen to some. The material, he's describing the new Jerusalem in this new heaven and new earth. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. Pure gold was this city. How beautiful. That's, that's more pure than anything that's known here on earth. Verse 19, the foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, and, and then he goes on to these beautiful prisms and expressions of the abundance of God's creation and all designed for beauty. Now, I just out of curiosity, because he said earlier that there were 12 gates that were made out of pearl, that were made out of pearls. And, you know, I was thinking, well, he says in verse 21, and the 12 gates were made out of 12 pearls, and each one of the gates was a single pearl. And so out of curiosity, I tried to Google what's the most expensive pearl <laughs> or the most expensive pearl necklace. And uh, I don't know that everything that came up was trustworthy. But one thing that did come up at least a couple times is there was a pearl uh, supposedly discovered by a Philippine fisherman, and it was this really large pearl. And, and I guess, as the story goes anyway, uh, he, he hid it under his pillow for good luck, and then his house burned down. So far, much for the luck, I guess. Uh, and, and then they found this pearl, and it was the largest pearl that apparently has been discovered. Now, there's some different you know, sizes given, but one, one said that it's uh, 75 pounds, and its worth is at 100 million. Now, whether that's true or not, we'll just go with it this morning because it's a good illustration. So it's an expensive pearl, in other words. One even said another one, and this is a little more reliable, that there is a the most expensive pearl jewelry is $11.8 million. 
Uh, it was owned by none other than uh, uh, Elizabeth Taylor. But actually, Richard Burton gave it to her. He only paid $37,000. He gave it to her, and a few hours later, as the story goes, she lost it. Her Lhasa Apsa ate it, and they later found it in his mouth and so on. But now that $37,000 pearl is worth $11.8 million. It's called La Peregrina, the pilgrim, as supposedly the name of it. And yet here it is, these kind of things which in this world would be a source of great greed and desire for what it could bring to a person in the new heavens and the new earth and in the consummation of all things, these are so plentiful and abundant, even more so than the silver, it says in Solomon's temple or Solomon's kingdom that it was so abundant it didn't even have much value. And here it is that it is gates made of a single pearl and streets of gold and all kinds of precious stones. And yet here in that kingdom, it is all this wealth with great purity, without the sin of greed and pride. It's experienced with a heart full of unrestrained love to God and neighbor in light of the full glory of Christ, satisfaction in him. And so here's the difference. These things in heaven don't have the same value as they do here. Could you imagine if somebody discovered a lost city and there were streets of gold and a pearl, they'd become wealthy, they'd own kingdoms, they would amass for themselves great wealth and power, and they would use that power. And yet in here, they're almost unnoticeable. And a matter of fact, the only value that these things will have in heaven is that they will reflect the glory of God, and when we enjoy their beauty, we'll enjoy the beauty because it reflects the glory of God, <laughs> And they will have no value in and of themselves. Now, that's a very important point because that sets our perspective for this world as well, doesn't it? That sets our perspective for this world as, as well. The value of all of this abundance is the beauty and, enjoy, and the enjoyment of them in heaven is that it declares the glory of God. And yet the reality is in light of all of this. So God is not opposed to wealth. God is not opposed to abundance. God is not opposed to having many things. As a matter of fact, it does, throughout the whole scope of Scripture, have a very positive element to it in a way that it reflects God's glory. But that is when it is had with righteousness. And that's the key. But something happened, of course, in Genesis 3, which we're well familiar with, and that is all that God created to be good and delightful became corrupted with the entrance of sin into his world. And so all is good and delightful and beautiful and holy was corrupted. What God designed for the good and the happiness of man, for the good and glory of, or for the glory and honor of God, was and is by sin's deceiving power a means of destruction. And so this is wealth and corruption. Wealth and corruption. Wealth as it's experienced under a world in sin. What this that God meant to be for our good, actually then, now, this abundance becomes a means of man's destruction, man's abuse, and man's misery so often because of its deceiving power. Satan is a thief to God's purposes and glory. And as in fact... It is the abundance and the beauty and the goodness of this fellowship with God and all that he created in Genesis 2, which is meant to set the contrast to the foolishness of sin. That we should read that and think, God gave all of that and you gave it up for what? It wasn't enough? And so is the reality of sin's deception. So wealth and corruption. 
Wealth and prosperity, interestingly, even in a corrupt world, though, are still a means of God's expression of his goodness. Expression of his goodness. But here's where things get a little bit tricky in a variety of ways. One is that God so often gives wealth to the wicked while withholding it from the righteous. God so often gives wealth to the wicked while withholding it from the righteous. But even more than that, God hasn't withheld or restrained his expressions of goodness in this creation even to all men indiscriminately. In other words, there's a sense in which the abundance of God's creation is enjoyed whether one is wicked or whether they're righteous. The theological category for this, you know, is common grace. It's common grace. The common grace of God. And it simply refers to this. God's governance over all of creation in which he expresses his goodness to the wicked and the good. To the righteous and the unrighteous. This is like Jesus when he said he causes his sun to rise and the rain to fall on both the good and the wicked. On both those who are righteous and those who are unrighteous. There's many places where that's said. But let me just repoint your attention to one in Acts chapter 14. He says this, Paul is, refer, is, is speaking to uh, this pagan people whom he brought the gospel and they want to make him, they want to honor him as a God because of a miracle that he did. But here's, here's what he says. He's speaking to these crowds that are wanting to offer him worship, him and Barnabas worship. And he says this, he says this. He says in verse 15, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In other words, there is only one true God who is made and rules over creation. And this is what he says. In generations gone by, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness. How did God bear witness to himself among the nations that he is the one true God who is to be worshipped? And here it is. This is the witness. In that he did good, and he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. The abundant goodness of God's creation was given even to these pagan people, and he is uh, today as an expression of his character that should lead to repentance. This is part of the, the goodness and the eternal nature and the character of God and his invisible attributes that are revealed at the beginning of the letter of Romans to all the world, all of creation, is to see what God does through providence, is to see what God does here in his providence of providing abundance for people and to say, this is the God who should be worshipped. This is the God who has also implanted in me a conscience. This is a God who also by his providence shows that he rules over this world. This is the God to be worshipped. But here I want to emphasize, in part, it is because of the overflowing goodness of God. Even to the wicked, but here's the double-edged sword. God's kindness in the abundance that he gives to men is taken as a lack of concern for sin. And so even that kindness then, through sin's deceiving power, can become a means of deception. Somebody who experiences abundance, even though living outside of God's, outside of any kind of covenant faithfulness to God, out of trust in him, out of faith in him, out of repentance toward Christ, 
then the abundance that God allows can be taken as God's approval or lead to a kind of complacency that leads to further rejection of God. And so, it says in Ecclesiastes 8.11, Solomon's going to draw attention to this. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men are given fully to do evil. And so God's abundance actually and his patience becomes to some a means of them deceiving themselves at all as well. And Psalm 10, he says, speaking of the wicked whose thoughts are there is no God, his ways prosper at all times. He's looking at the wicked and says, your ways are prosper. Your judgments, he says, of God are on high, but out of his sight for all his adversaries, he snorts at them. He says, I will not be moved. And he curses and he blasphemes and so on and so forth, even while experiencing the abundance of God's good creation. So, even though in our understanding of wealth there is good, there is blessing, there is the glory of God, there is the satisfaction and the happiness of man under the conditions of the fall, wealth becomes a means oftentimes for great evil. Let me just list some. And I'm just going to list these. We we don't, don't have time to... Look at them in detail. Wealth outside of a biblical framework can then become a pool, of, a, a tool of oppression and power. Solomon has already made note of that. I looked again in verse 4 of chapter 1. We've looked at this passage already. At all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, that they had no one to comfort them, and on the side of their oppressors was power. Power, that's political power, but it's also through the abundance of what they have. They had no one to comfort them. In verse 8 of chapter 5, just before this passage that we'll start tomorrow, he says, you see the oppression of the poor and the denial of justice and righteousness in the province. In other words, the poor are the ones who are oppressed and the ones who have the power and who have the wealth are the ones who use the poor to their own advantage and to the poor's disadvantage. So wealth can become a means of oppression and power. It can also be a point of misery for those who gain it dishonestly. For those who gain it dishonestly. The sleep of a working man is pleasant whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep in verse 12 of chapter 5. Proverbs warns, or Solomon did earlier, about that kind of wealth that is gained dishonestly. Yes, that includes cheating on your income tax. Yes, that includes cheating your employer at work. That includes any variety of things that we might justify because we might benefit from it. It's not going to bring God's blessing in that sense. So he says in Proverbs 15, I'll just, uh, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it because it was ill-gained, ill-gottenly. It can bring false security. Oftentimes, wealth has a sense of security that it brings with it, but it's a false sense of uh, security. 
oh, how I, we could wish we had go through the whole parable, but you'll remember it in Luke chapter 12, where Jesus is speaking of the one who hoards up great wealth for himself and keeps it up and keeps it up. And he says, he says to his soul, he says to himself, soul, you have many goods laid up for you for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Live lavishly and for your own ends and for your own satisfaction and all of the abundance that God has given to you. You are secure, you are strong, you are stable, you will not be moved. These things are for your pleasure and for your enjoyment. Take the full satisfaction that you can gain out of them. Verse 20, but God said to him, you fool. This very night your soul is required of you and now who will own what you have prepared? And so is the man who stores up treasures for himself but is not rich towards God. So wealth can be a means of false security. Pride, uh, wealth can be a means of pride and causing a heart to forget God. Let me just put this question to you. Let me read just this brief section and see if you can think of a nation that might be compared to this besides the nation of Israel. I'll let you fill in the blank. Deuteronomy chapter 6, again, going back to that passage where God is addressing his people uh, that book where God is addressing his people before they go into the land. And he says this, after, right after what we read earlier about all the abundance of the land, he says this in verse 10. And when you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. Verse 11, beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commanding you today, verse 12, otherwise when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and your gold multiply and all that you have multiplies, verse 14, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You will forget him and you will say in verse 17, you will say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. God didn't give me this wealth. I worked hard. I went to school. I made good decisions. I took risk. I made this wealth. It's my wealth. It's my money to do what I want to. I don't need God. And so you shall then remember the Lord your God. And for it is he who is giving you the power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is, as it is this day. In other words, wealth and abundance, when it's attained by God's blessing, can actually be a means rather than leading to God, but of forgetting God. And we as a nation... I would say, have done exactly that thing. Who needs God? We're Americans. Who needs God? We're the strongest military in the world. Who needs God? Our economy can't fail. Who needs God? We're doing just fine without him. Thank you very much. See you later. And so wealth can, in that sense, become great means of deception. Wealth can become a means of selfishness. I used to wait tables uh, when I was a teenager. I was a lousy waiter, by the way. I had a great time with people, but like everything else was just, you know, not good as far as getting them their food and all that stuff. But that's right, you're the main part of it. But anyway, one thing that was really interesting, if any of you have ever waited tables, you know this. Uh, 
so there was a window at this one restaurant I worked out, and you could see the parking lot right where the cars pulled up. And if somebody pulled up in a Subaru, you could think they'll probably be a good tipper. If they pulled up in a Mercedes, you knew they were going to be a lousy tipper. It just worked that way consistently all the time. The nicer the car, the less of a tipper they were. The more average of the car, the better of the tipper they were. You would think it would be just the opposite. But wealth has a way of doing that to us. It has a way of producing selfishness. It has a way of producing a kind of self-centeredness that doesn't want to open the hand and do good. One example of that, I'm just going to mention it for time's sake, of Luke 16, where you had the parable that Jesus told uh, of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man, he went around in purple and linen and he lived extravagantly while Lazarus was a poor man at his gate and that he ignored, who wanted merely the crumbs from his table. But he had no interest in him because he was living lavishly of himself. He was living selfishly in all of his abundance and his wealth, which was of great extravagance, was meant only for himself. And wealth has a way of doing that. The more money you have, the harder it is to get rid of it. The more money you have. I know uh, now it's interesting in the lotto, they have people when somebody wins, they'll put them in touch with a financial advisor. When I grew up, and it was right when the lotto was uh, coming out in the 80s, and I can still remember, it was very often uh, the stories you get when somebody won this, you know, all of this money, if you track their lives later, you could you know, see these stories you're on your own. Their lives were ruined. Marriages were ruined, families were ruined, and oftentimes they had this great wealth, they didn't know what to do with it, so they spent it on frivolous things, and they became poor and in debt. Money has a way of doing that, of feeding the selfishness. But even greater, even greater is this. Wealth, under the conditions of the fall, have a means of producing a spiritual enslavement. And again, we're familiar with this story. I want to mention it to you, but the, 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 the classic picture of that would be the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. What must I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus confronts him with the law. He still doesn't get his sin, so Jesus gets to the very heart of the matter, to what he loves, and he says, okay, we'll do this then. You who think you've kept the law, let's see about do not covet. Let's see about love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Why don't you do this? Take everything you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and then come follow me. What happened? The rich man hung his head. His countenance fell. He was sad. Why? Because here is the testimony of Scripture. He was one who owned much property. He owned much property. At the end of the day, the... The the fork in the road for his eternal soul and his happiness or to keep what he had, his stuff. And he said, I'm going to keep my stuff. Why? Because I have a lot of it. Now, here's the irony. If he would have had less stuff, it would have been easier for him to follow and give it all up to follow Christ. Do you see? Do you see the connection there? But because he had a lot of stuff, it was harder to give that up and follow Christ. It was harder to believe that what is good for my soul is actually by losing these things and following Christ. Why? Because he sure enjoyed it. There was a lot that came with that wealth. Prestige, honor, false sense of blessing, power, comfort, pleasure, all kinds of things wealth can provide. And so... This wealth for him, as it did for so many, became a means of spiritual enslavement. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. We're going to expand on all this when we talk about the Christian and giving 
And we're going to look into these kind of things in more detail. Here I'm just laying it for you. Under the conditions of the fall, wealth can become a spiritual enslavement and a means actually of forgetting God or even in this case, rejecting God. And as I noted earlier, because that is the case, it is the wicked who give their lives so much to gain wealth and God allows them to do so. And even to where they seem to have an advantage over the righteous. For time's sake, I won't go there, but in Psalm 73 is all about that. He looked with envy, the psalmist did, at the flagrant pride of the unrighteous and how they went around boasting in themselves and blaspheming God and they had such power and such money. And he says, I looked at them and I, I almost envied them and, he, and I, I was like an animal, I was like a crazed dog, a beast in my heart because I almost envied them. But then do you know what changed his perspective? You know what changed his perspective? He says this in verse 17. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. That changed everything. When he was looking at it from a human perspective and we'd say, why do the wicked have so much power? Why do they have wealth? Why are they able with all of this wealth to work such harm to God's people and harm to all that is good and all that would cause flourishing among man? Why is that the case? And sometimes even the righteous can be thrown off by that. But he says, until I came into the sanctuary of God... And then what happened? He says, I perceived their end. I perceived their end. Yes, now they seem to have the advantage. But then he says, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. He goes on. And the end result for him was this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My satisfaction was realized, he came to realize that those aren't really the things that will satisfy, but in a right relationship with God. And then you'll get all those things beside in due time. But those things won't have the same hold on the heart. The base understanding of all of this then is the gospel, and this is wealth and Christ which I'll mention briefly. Wealth in Christ. Here's a key passage that we'll again look at later in more detail, but 2 Corinthians 8, and this is all about giving. This is all about how we, as Christians, view what we have and what we do with it. He says in verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the 2 Corinthians 8, that though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. He puts it in the language of possessions and of wealth, but he's talking here about spiritual blessing. He had everything, but he gave it up for a period that he might give everything he had so that you could be rich. And so the idea here primarily is spiritual, but it includes at the end of the day, even as we saw in the new heavens and the new earth, everything else. It's just that our relationship to them has changed. It has changed. Because Christ becomes the treasure. Christ becomes the giver of all good things. Christ becomes the one 
whom our hearts adore and who we want to please and who we gladly realize that no matter what we give, he gives far more. And so he should be our treasure in heaven. Well, I want to skip over some things and then I'll have to go to the end. Let me give what sums this up and that points us back to Christ. And this I found very interesting. I always found this interesting, but it's in the book of Revelation. And let me just say here then, the climactic theological statement on wealth really is found at the end of the story. The end of the story. And it centers, not surprisingly, on the glory of Christ. Listen to this. After praising the Father as the one by whose will all things were created and giving him worship in chapter 4, verse 11. And then changing after John saw the great vision of who was going to open the scroll, he began to weep. And then it says the lion, the lion of Judah... He's the one who can open the scroll and Christ comes forward and he's the one who can open the seven seals and unleash the judgments of God that will bring in the kingdom of God. And he receives worship as the only one worthy in all of heaven to do so. And they sang to him a new song, worthy are you to open the book and to break its seals. You were slain. You purchased for God and with your blood men from every tribe and nation and tongue and people. They're a kingdom of priests to God. But then listen to what he says. Then he, he just unfolds this scene with angels, myriads of myriads, and un- tens of thousands of tens and thousands, just beyond number of these angels and the elders and living creatures in this amazing scene. And listen to what they say to him. They say, worthy is the lamb that was slain. We sing this sometime to receive what? Power. These are, these are expressions innately of his of his dignity and his being as God, but also as his role as Messiah. Worthy is the lamb that was slain, listen, to receive power and what? Riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Why is Christ worthy to receive all of those things? And why is he worthy for us to give up all of those things to gain Christ? Because he is the owner of them. He's the owner of them. When we think of possessions, when we think of wealth, and when we think of Christ, he is the one who created all of those things, and he is the one ultimately to whom we will gladly ascribe him to own and to possess. Listen to this. There's one verse. It's in Colossians. He says this. All things have been created through him and they have been created for him. There is a theology of wealth. All things have been created through Christ and all things have been created for Christ, for his glory. And so he who redeemed all things, he who threw everything in heaven and earth was reconciled, he who will save the kingdom, he to whom all his enemies are being put as a footstool under his feet, he to whom all of creation in heaven and under the earth and on the earth and all the redeemed say Christ alone is the one who should receive all power and riches and honor and glory and blessing from now and forever. It belongs to him. All of our wealth belongs to him, and it is a means when we capture that glory to say we gladly give it to him as an expression of worship. It's not a call to poverty, but it is a call to understand ownership. Ownership. 
and purpose. God gives us these things to enjoy, but he gives us to enjoy them ultimately that it might be to the glory of Christ. So the preeminence and riches and honor are the means of extravagant, extravagant blessing to his own. He receives all these things. You know why? Here's a theology of giving. Do you know why Christ receives all these things? That he could share them. That he could give them to his own. We are fellow inheritors with him. So that everything Christ purchased by his own glory, by his own suffering, he purchased to give to us to share in with him. We are his inheritance. We are ultimately his inheritance. And so we can only have a proper relationship to wealth when we're in a right relationship with Christ. We're to love Christ supremely, to love him above all earthly treasures, earthly possessions, earthly relationships. And only then can we really enjoy all of the earthly blessings that he gives. And only then, when we're in a right relationship with Christ, we'll be in a right relationship to the things that he gives. And we can say, look, I'd rather, I'd rather have abundance than lack. Sure, we're not, we're not desert monks who go out and want to live on a telephone pole. It wasn't a telephone pole, but a post, you know, for a long time. Uh, some of them did, but we're not saying that. What we are saying, though, is in the affections of our heart, wealth is meant to be a blessing to reflect the glory of God, but nothing compares to the treasure of Christ. And when we want to enjoy the things that God gives them, we have to enjoy them secondarily. And that's the key. We have to enjoy them secondarily. If we love them in a way that it causes us to forget their giver, then they will bring misery, deception. But if we love them as expressions of the one whom we supremely love of Christ, then we can have the joy. And we can say like Paul, I know how to be content when I have a lot and I know how to be content when I have nothing. Why? Because in all of that, Christ Jesus is the one who strengthens me. For to him to live is gain or to die is gain and to live is Christ. So that is an overview to bring us into an understanding of Solomon's teaching in Ecclesiastes 5. Pray with me and then we'll... John will lead us in a closing hymn. Father, thank you that you are the owner of all things. You are so good and abundant and lavish. But even as you reminded your people, it was your land. You are the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So when you gave it to them, you were giving them out of your own stock. Not because it was theirs inherently. Nothing is ours inherently. You are the one who owned the land. So if they didn't live in it rightly, it spit them out until you purified them to bring them back in. You are the one. You are the one who richly supplies us with all good things to enjoy so that we might be generous, so that we might have our hope fixed not on the uncertainty of riches, but on you, Christ. And even as we think about possessions and stuff and which goes on ultimately even to the whole of our life. It's not even just about wealth. It's about our very person. And when we have denied ourselves to take up our cross and follow you and we've lost our life that we might gain yours, then wealth just fits in there as to another means of how we might bring glory to you and how we might rejoice in your goodness. And so we thank you that all of our good, all of our treasure, 
all of our life is ultimately bound up in the one who is alone worthy and will receive all power, riches, honor, blessing, and glory and receive it that we might share in it with him to his everlasting praise. Change our perspective, Lord. It's so different to our culture. Change our perspective that we might live for you more wisely in this world and with more joy. And it is to that end that we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.